Hello, everyone. I'm Frank Garz with Lean Startup Company, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Today's topic is how to get the most from your people by being open, honest, and direct. And moderating the discussion is our own Lean Startup Company faculty member, Elliot Suzel. Our guest is founder and CEO at Raise the Bar, Aaron Levy. And with that, I'll hand things off to Elliot. Hello and welcome, everyone. My name is Elliot Susel, senior faculty member with Lean Startup Company. And today we have the distinct pleasure of talking with Aaron Levy, who is the CEO and founder at Raise the Bar. Aaron is going to tell us all about his company. We're going to talk about uh, how he founded this organization. And then we're going to talk about creating an environment of psychological safety, which, yeah, that's pretty crucial for practicing Lean Startup. Uh, Aaron, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you here. Thank you for having me on, Elliot. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. Amen. Well, we've got a huge agenda today. I think the first thing on the menu is just tell us a little bit about this company that you founded, and then we'll dive into the history. Yeah, so, um, you know, so raise the bar. I mean, I think it, it kind of goes into the history is is about the company we founded. So if I blend the two, I apologize, uh, just interrupt me. But, um, you know, I've, I've always been curious about why as human beings, when people know better, why when we know better, do we not do better? Why is there this gap between knowing and doing? Um, you know, I, I can smile because we're, we're right around January when New Year's resolutions start to fall apart. Um, and something like only 8% of New Year's resolutions ever get accomplished. And it's not because people don't know what to do. It's because people don't go from knowledge to action, and that's always baffled me. Um, in every realm of life, whether it's personal or business or team-based, it's, it's been something that's curious and confusing. Um, and so I spent the earlier part of my career studying the science of behavior change, of why do people do what they do, of what actually, uh, what I call triggers habit formation, what gets somebody to do something. Um, and so I looked at, what, what do people do, like the people who actually take action more rapidly, more consistently in their life, what are they doing? What's holding people back? The people who don't actively uh, take action consistently and trigger habit formation. And so I studied the science of behavior change. I studied the different models. But uh, if anybody who studied science, you know, it's like that's all theory and you can look at studies. And you, but what, what, how does it really work? How does it happen in real life? And so I was fortunate in my first role. Uh, where I, I ran our education department and our operations department. So basically what that means is I got to look at like the science and methodology and then apply it in the real world operationally. Um, and you had the chance to work with thousands upon thousands of leaders to see what really works and what doesn't work. And I think, um, you know, the, the part of my journey that was most important was, I don't know if I could pinpoint an actual moment, uh, but looking back now, there were two enormous discoveries that came out of my work with these leaders. Um, the first discovery was I figured out what really works to move people rapidly from knowledge to action. How do you do it? How do you do it effectively? How do you do it efficiently? And I say that because that helped form the basis of what we do at Raise the Bar and everything that we think about is, is not do people know more, but how are we get helping people do more? But even more uh, foundational for me was the second thing, which was I found out what filled me up and, and what I talk about 
with our clients is, is my commitment to the world and, and other people might say your purpose or your, your fulfillment. And, and that was really helping people unlock their potential. Like when I saw that like light bulb turn on for people, there's nothing that fills me up more and filled me up more than, and getting clarity on that for me changed the game. It made me question what I was doing, think about how I was doing what I was doing and start to ask questions like, how can I be more impactful? How can I unlock more potential? Where is this problem most, most prevalent? And in doing that, I looked around. I'm a millennial, um, and I looked around at all my friends, and didn't matter how much money they were making, several hundred thousand dollars at 25, it didn't matter if they had a barista on staff, they were working with their best friends, they had a cool office with free t-shirts and all the food you can get, and, LaCroix and kombucha on tap and all the things that these cool places have and yet each and every one of my friends was either thinking about leaving their job or had left their job and then I said okay let's uh, let's really curious what's going on here and I started to interview and interact with as many people as I could as I as I would talk to me and tell me their leave story and in each leave story I noticed that what what's happening here is this untapped potential for individuals, right? The individuals themselves aren't tapping into their best self and their potential. And companies, because I worked with the companies, I realized companies want their employees to be at their best, right? It's like, if of course. employees are their best, companies succeed. And so, um, you know, we have this aligned vision, but it's there's a big gap. Um, and to me, that was a real potential opportunity. And I started to ask, why is that? What's happening with that? What's behind that? And the, the core point of leverage in any organization is your manager. And unfortunately, most managers suck. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's, it's not like uh, in reinventing the wheel. You can look back at, uh, at research from 50 years ago. You can look back at articles from then. And they're going to say the same thing. It's not just the millennial. No, it's any generation. Most managers suck. Why does that happen? Because most managers are promoted because they're good at what they do, not because they're good at leading people. Yep. Those are two very different skill sets. Being a top performer versus being a leader of people require vastly different skills. It's, and it's true. I actually remember seeing some statistic, and I don't remember exactly when or where this was from. And even if it's not totally accurate, if it's directionally correct, we're spot on here, which is that something like 80% of people quit their boss, not their job. And like, even as a saying, I think it's kind of spot on, right? Like, if this individual cannot inspire you, cannot get you excited, cannot help bring forth the best of yourself every single day, well, we got a big problem. So, okay, I'm with you so far. And so, and, and, and right, right on top of that, I mean, Gallup came out with a study not long ago that said one in 10 managers has the tools and skills to lead people. One in 10. So you get lucky, right? You get lucky with a manager that as a company you promote um, or an employee, you get lucky to work with a good manager. But like I said, that, does, that, that doesn't need to be the case. Just like you can train someone to code in a coding bootcamp, just like you can train someone to learn how to model in Excel, you can train someone on the skills required to lead people. And yes, it's different. It takes more to develop soft skills like listening, asking powerful questions, communicating directly, but those are skills. 
And so the work we do at Raise the Bar and the focus of what we do is we empower managers with the tools, skills, and training to be better, to be better leaders of people, to be coaches, so that they really can get the most out of their employees. Nice. So you're very much in the school of thought that uh, leaders are made, not born. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I look at myself. I, the two biggest skills that we talk about developing at Raise the Bar are listening and asking powerful questions. Those are two of the hardest skills for me personally. Those are skills that I sucked at and I'm better now. I like to think I'm better. I hope I am. Um, but that came after hours and hours of practice and beating on the craft. That was going through coaching training and having people record my calls Then I had to transcribe everything I wrote, listen to myself, which is awful. On top of that, have someone say, hey, Aaron, what were you doing here? You really weren't hearing what the person was saying. We really weren't listening to the pauses in what they were saying. And so through practice, consistently over time, deliberate practice, which for me is the most important thing to move from knowledge to action, um, I got better. And the only ingredient that companies need to have or that you need to have is the desire to do it. If you have the desire to do it, if there is a will, um, then you'll be willing to take the, the non-sexy, but simple, consistent actions that help you be better. Mm. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my favorite expressions is that anything worth doing is worth sucking at until you get good. <laughs> and sometimes getting in the reps really makes a big difference, getting in that practice. And I like your describing that process for you. So talk to me about how you went from, I see there is a problem to I can build a business around this. So I think that is a big jump that is challenging for a lot of folks. They say, okay, I see a problem, but you know, there's nothing I can do about it or I don't know what to do next. So how did you go from that, like I see the problem to and now we can build a business around this? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I, I hope this makes it, helps people see um, kind of the experience because the, at least from my entrepreneur experience, there, there is a little bit of a leap um, and there is, it, you don't, there's no certainty. And that's something I talk to with the entrepreneurs I work with. You're never going to be certain that you're doing the right thing. I think that was one of the hardest experiences, but my first company that I worked for where I was the first employee, we were a startup and I got to experience the startup experience and build a team and build backend operations and get confidence in understanding what works and what doesn't work. And all along the way, I would like take mental notes and sometimes actual notes. Like I have those notes that said this, if I had a chance to, to decide how this runs, I wouldn't do it this way or I would do it this way. And so I just would take notes. And, uh, you know, that was a part of my process as a developing leader and a growing professional was understanding what I liked and what I didn't and what I wanted more of. And I know we all do that. You're like, I wish my boss never said that to me. Um, like that mental note, don't do that if you're a boss. You know, I use those mental notes for myself and I got clear on what the problem was and I didn't see anybody in the marketplace or enough people in the marketplace taking consistent action. And the other problem I saw was this problem was much more prominent because of the millennial generation, because millennials, everybody wants purpose, connection, and growth, right? They want to feel like they're making an impact. They want to feel connected to their team, to their company, to their boss. They want to feel like their company cares about their growth and development. Everybody in the world wants these are basic human needs. Yeah. However, 
The well, millennial generation, not just because they're millennials, but for a number of like factors, they expect that from the workplace. And if they don't get that, because of how low unemployment is right now, it is so much easier for them to go somewhere else to find that. And so I just saw that as a glaring problem. I'm like, we need to do something about this. And I was building my business plan. And my brother, who was the owner of the first company that I worked for, I had told him I was leaving. And he said he was excited for me um, and, and probably scared and probably like trying to figure out what he was doing on his end. He said, I want you to, to meet this guy, Andrew. And I said, sure, just sit down with him. So I sat down with Andrew and what I did really well in my first organization was operations. I did, I like could run a team, I could lead a team, I could build a team, but I didn't do any sales. I didn't do any backend finance. Um, and you're really not running a business until you're thinking about that. And honestly, you're really not running a business until you're, the work that you do on a daily basis contributes to the bottom line of the business, whether you eat or not. Um, and I don't mean that literally, but sometimes it is literally. And so I noticed in meeting with Andrew, he said, Aaron, you can build that business with me. You can work and help me in our business. And so I, I realized, hey, I looked at somebody who could really do sales really well and I could look up to him and learn from him. Um, and I took a leap and I went to work for him in his consulting company and his, they were an actuarial consulting firm. Hmm. And all of that was, we were both clear of where I wanted to go, what I, I wanted to solve this millennial turnover problem. And I wanted to get better at selling. I wanted to get better at being able to communicate the value of what we do and serve other people and solve problems for them. So that was a real learning point for me and a path. And after a year there, we hadn't started to address the millennial problem. And I said to Andrew, I was like, we haven't gone and made any progress on this problem that I wanted to solve. The reason I wanted to initially leave and start my business. And he said, you're right. I said, it's time for me to go. Mm. Um, so, so to summarize so far, you found a problem, you gathered data to say, hey, this is a validated real problem. Yep. Then you said, I want to do this solution. And you met someone who said, well, we can do that together. And I think you're spot on that finding a partner who shores up your weak spots is really powerful. This person's really strong at sales and you can learn from them. That's a really good situation. Um, so it sounds like that experience didn't exactly deliver on helping you also solve the problem you wanted to solve, but maybe you learned some good stuff on the way. I mean, it was, if I had, if I didn't have that experience, I wouldn't be where I am today. Mm -hmm. I was intentional knowing that if I ever wanted to start a business, I need to sell. Um, for those of you who think you can start a business and not sell or just like hope that it happens, uh, very unlikely. And so I realized that that was a skill. I audited a class, a, an entrepreneurial sales class. I read books on copywriting, on marketing. I practiced those things readily. I cold called, I cold emailed, I went to networking events. I did all these things to try and sell what we were delivering at that company. And in that experience, I learned, okay, I'm not so good at this, but I just like anything I need to practice. And I got a year of practice. And I finally said, I sat down with my business coach and I said, should I, should I start my thing part-time on the side? Do I? And he said, you already know the answer, Aaron. And it was right. I, I knew that it was time to, regardless of if I could have done part-time or done something else, I said, I need to dedicate my full energy to this opportunity. And 
the time is now. And so I, I said goodbye to that job. And I started head on um, using the skills that I started to build, which is, you know, getting really clear on our value proposition, getting really clear on who we are and what we do and the product we deliver. And obviously that was never really clear. It's always changing. It's always adapting. It's never static. And then calling on people and meeting people and testing it and testing it and testing it and um, continuing to grind and knowing that I gave myself about a year of runway. I, I didn't have a year of runway in the bank, uh, but I gave myself a year. I said, hey, if I can build enough, some, if I could find a way to make some money that yeah. to extend a year, a year is what I'll need to really prove and see if what the problem I see is actually what somebody's willing to pay for and is an actual viable solution. So I want to jump in and add a couple things, which is that I, I, I want to dig into the testing that you did in a moment, because that is really interesting from a lean startup perspective. I'll be very eager to hear what styles of tests you ran. I will say that in general, when I'm working with folks that say they want to start a consulting business, uh, the advice I give them is to just start selling <laughs> because you don't have a product exactly. I mean, you're your product, right? So can you sell yourself or not? And that's the big test. Um, as opposed to, you know, if you're creating an app for a smartphone or a website that's a physical product or a service or whatever, um, if you're building a consulting business, being able to sell is really absolutely essential, especially if you don't have a partner that's taking care of that component. And the big test is whether or not someone will pay you money for it. So um, talk to me about how you went and tested. Yeah. Do you want like... Well, I'll give you as much detail. And if I'm giving you too much detail, tell me. All right, I'll pull you back if it's too much detail. Pull me back. And if I'm not giving you enough detail, ask for more. Okay. Um, there were multiple realms. I got clear on my value proposition. And I put my value proposition on a one page or on my website. Um, right. I didn't, it wasn't about to like create this whole fancy website. I went to like Wix and I created a website and I put the problem that we solve, how we solve it. It's like, what do you do? How do you do it? We help companies retain millennial talent. How do you do it? We empower managers to be better leaders of people. What does that look like? Right. And very, um, I tried to make it look pretty, but clean and simple. Um, I went to the marketplace and by going to the marketplace, I um, met with people, anybody that I could meet with. I scheduled meetings. I cold emailed and I would track my emails to see if people open them based on the subject line that was there, if people clicked on anything that was in there. Um, and I, I captured all that in, you know, in a leads list. Um, and so I would see how did people respond. Um, and I wouldn't just stop at one email, right? There's like, if you ever look at sales and outbound marketing, it's seven emails is usually like mm -hmm. a good amount. Yes. Most sales happen between like the fifth and the seventh or the That's third right and the seventh. Most people give up by the first or second. I made sure to continually follow up and be persistent and consistent and polite and graceful and tactful too. I did that, right? To see you what- You have a funnel, essentially. And you're actually tracking the metrics for your funnel, which is uh -huh. pretty cool. As much as I could. And then I did that too. I went out to as many networking events because I knew that when I engaged with people, that would give me, when people connected with me, I could explain it better. I could resonate more than I could be just a cold email. Um, so I would network with people and build my network and meet people either that could introduce me to somebody else or that were direct sales. So in the first year and a half, I think I met with 300 different businesses. Um, and that was just hustle. 
That was just literally hustle and being willing to hear someone say no, being willing to follow up with someone after a networking event or after a meeting and say, hey, you said you'd introduce me to that person, can you? Um, and I'd make it really easy for them to introduce me. I'd give them a one-liner or a bio to say, hey, here's how to introduce Aaron. Uh, and I just, my testing was hearing what resonated with the marketplace, whether someone would nod their head, that, that's a cue, or someone would take a second meeting, or someone would buy a product, what product did they buy? And I didn't, you're right, Elliot, I didn't have a product yet. I had an idea and I had the outline of the product so I could talk about it. And I had the purpose of the product and how it worked, but I didn't develop it until I sold it. When I sold it, I ran, I sprinted to build it. Uh, but I, I would say that even for non-consulting, because what we do, we're a training company, so we're not, we do some consultative work, but we do product solutions, program, yep. like yep. a leadership boot camp. Uh, management, custom management training for companies. And so, you know, I, I advise people too, is as much as you can not build the product yet, see if someone buys it and then build it. Uh, that helps you because the product that I would have built on day one was very different than the product I have today, which is very different than the first product I delivered. Yeah. And a lot of that came from talking with your potential customers and hearing what they were saying and reacting to it, I would assume, which like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense that when you're talking with your customers, you end up at a much, much better place for what it is that you ultimately want to offer. And I liked how you were explaining that, like, yeah, you needed to have a website, you need to look professional, but like, this is not a custom coded solution. It's like off the shelf, swap a few things out, make some changes and you're good to go, right? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't build a full website for at least three or six months. Um, until I started to see, oh yeah, I actually have a lot of content that I should be putting on the website that will make it easier for people when they meet me or introduce me. Like now, if you go, you can see what we talk about. You can see our Forbes articles. You can see speaking engagements. You can sign up for our boot camp. Like, but that wasn't until that collateral started to build as I built my company. That collateral started to build as I tested in the marketplace. That collateral started to build as I had different client testimonials. Um, so I didn't, everything that happened is, is a continual build and I wasn't sure what the right move was to do. I had my best educated guesses and I tested them. And, uh, so to that end, right, you, you have a best educated guess and you run a test. Um, did some of those tests ever like fail spectacularly? Are there oh, any yeah. horror stories? <laughs> yeah. I have a client that, um, was, was a big tech company in, here in Chicago where I'm from and they were my first client and the test was okay can I just get myself into the company and I delivered free solutions and can I get myself into the company this is a big company it's a big name company even if I just get a testimonial from them that will build name recognition and uh it fell through completely oh no because the work that we do needs um, needs work from the client's end. The mm. client needs to, to be willing to buy in, to do the work, to, um, and, and that is put resources forward. That's money, that's time, that's energy. And it was a big learning that I, I needed to actually change my target buyer. My target buyer was no longer a head of a training department. My target buyer was the CEO or the COO of a company. Oh, interesting. And that was a scary transition too, to say, Hey, you're not talking to 
HR, which was my, my network. My network was HR and training. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to, three or six months in, had to look for a whole new and build a whole new network um, around CEO, COO, president, C-suite. Um, and there's also the mental component of like, oh, you're talking to that person, the founder of the business. Yeah. Uh, and as soon as I did that, it had a very profound impact on the type of clients we worked with, the success with those clients, because the companies that I work with, the source of the company, and almost any company, the source of the company is the CEO, is the founder, is the oh, yeah. president. Um, and for the work that I do, the work that we do on building better leaders, it requires that source to be engaged to say, hey, my people matter. I need my people to be better. I need them to not be doers. I need them to be leaders. So you did a sort of customer segment pivot where your vision stayed the same, but your approach changed. And your approach changed in this place from one target customer to a different one. Um, and, it, and, you know, it's so interesting when we talk about the customer within a large company. It's not the, the big company is never the customer, right? The customer is the person who buys the service within the company or has the problem within that company, right? It's such like a huge mistake that folks make. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, my customer is going to be businesses that are, you know, over 2,000 employees or whatever. It's like, no, it's not. It's that's, the CEO or it's the HR buyer, right? That's the demographic. Well, I, I even, I break it down in three ways, right? They're demographic. That's important it, because that tells you what kind of buyer it is. Between 50 and 250, there's a different organizational process in those companies versus 250 to 20,000. Um, there's the demographic. Then there's like the buyer itself. Like it's a you know, the SVP of this or this or this, these are the job titles and this is the general age and this is it's usually a white male or a female or whatever. I know we don't want to profile, but you need to profile to understand your client. Yep. And then it's the psychographic. And I think that's where I started with psychographic first. Okay. And I, I went back and, and then looked at client type in other ways, but psychographic is like, what do they care about? What's important to them? What does success look like for them? What problem are they facing? Right. Is, is the CEO facing the same problem that I'm talking about? The problem of retaining their top talent, the problem of getting the most out of their people. And those are the problems when I look back at my clients, I'm like, yeah, those are the problems that my CEOs are facing. So did you start getting fundamentally different answers when you switched to the customer segment? Or like what, what was the major shift when you went from one customer segment as a target to another? The major shift was action. So I'll give you an example. I had a client that I worked with that we did really, we, we had an engagement, we did really great work and the CHRO came into the training. We were working with one department and sometimes the head of the department is like the CEO, right? Cause they can make all the executive decisions mm -hmm. and the head of the department, the, the CHRO, the head HR person said, Whoa, what are you guys doing over here? This is leadership training and you didn't like, I'm not including this. And so she asked to be a part of the training. She went through it. She became a super ambassador. She loved it. She's still like, still a client, fantastic, successful. She was a cheerleader for what we needed to do. And yet she said, we need to bring this to the whole organization, to the executive team first. Six months later, we still didn't have anything going. <laughs> and then she said, Aaron, we need to, I want you to meet the CEO, which I hadn't met yet. I want uh. you to meet the CEO. And I want you guys to just connect. And within a week of meeting the CEO, I met with him and her. And seven days later, we had a contract signed. 
Mm -hmm. So it was the action and the focus and the intensity that a CEO can bring and does bring because they are the source and because that pain point is so true to them. It's not just they want it. If they need it, they do it. And that mm -hmm. was the difference is I went from, yeah, I like this, but I need to get a bunch of other people to sign off or let's get them on board to, we need this, we're going to do this, and this is going to make a major impact. And it did. And so that, it made an impact in my business and how fast, how much more efficient things move. And it made an impact in their businesses because you get the senior level buy-in. Um, and oftentimes they're a part of the work. They're a part of that training. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, you're spot on and you're hitting on something interesting, which is that you know, when we talk about a lean startup style transformation, a major change in the way that an organization does work, um, there's sort of two thoughts here. And so of course, there's stuff in between. But to generalize, there's the group of folks who think a grassroots movement can work. And together, we can influence change. And there's the group of folks who are basically like, if you do not have the buy-in of the CEO, it's hopeless. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here, without permission of the CEO. And to your point, like, look, when the CEO's on board, it took a week. Like, just boom. And the action happened, right? So I, I tend to lean at least in the direction that it's a whole heck of a lot easier to make major change. And that is what you're talking about doing um, when it comes from the top of the organization and they're helping push it down. Yeah, and there's, there's something like, and I'm just thinking about the people who are listening to this as well, to, to take in a, is there's no black and white ever. There's no this or that. It's not like I said, I will not do the grassroots approach. It's like I said, my focus, my energy, my attention is finding this type of client with this type of problem and delivering this solution. Now, does that mean I won't deliver a solution if the client is a fit? And by the way, the client has to be a fit in general. Of course, there are plenty of times where I do some grassroots something and I will validate and check and we'll see, check my assumptions, right? This didn't work in these three occasions, but is it going to work now? Mm. More than not, it doesn't, um, or it's not as impactful, but then I can go in approaching that and saying, Hey, this is why it will likely not work. So we probably shouldn't do this work together unless we bring the CEO in. And other times I've, I've had success from grassroots. And so I don't say, okay, this is not CEO. So I won't even talk to you. Yeah. I just reframe that. I've actually created a different product for that. Mm. So we do custom training within companies where we walk, where we take them through a leadership program over five months, 10 months, or 18 months, like management 101, 102, and 103. And then we said, let's actually create 101 as a boot camp for individuals to come to. So that CHRO can say, I have a manager or two that I want to send but I, I can't get buy-in to do this with all of my managers in my company, but I can send one or two people to test it out or they really need it. Or I'm an individual within an organization and I want to come and I want to develop my skills. I want to be a better leader to be a better professional because that's where I want my career. And so we have a defined product that is the bootcamp that people come and we have an accumulation of leaders coming to do the bootcamp all together. And that it's like, it's, grown into its own thing, right? Our last two boot camps, our first two and our last two boot camps sold out um, pretty rapidly. And that's because I think there is another market, which is leaders who want to get better. So and let me so. ask you a tough question here, which is, so, okay, you've, you've gone, gone so far on this journey. 
you've got a product now, it's a training program, you know who you're typically advertising to, to, to get them on board, to sell it. Um, the tough thing that many organizations struggle with is measuring success, especially of a program where we're talking about changing leader behavior. Um, have you ever had an opportunity to measure like the before and after for the impact of the work that you're doing? Yeah. So I'm going to give you two, remind me, let's talk about two measures of success because I measure success of the client in two ways. One, client actual delivery and what they're doing. And two, are, am I continuing to do work with them? And how does that work mm -hmm. look and how does that work progress? Mm -hmm. um, the success that I talk about with clients is we go up front and we say with the CEO, what does success look like? Because I'm not going to create my own definitions of success, my own uh, ROI measures, and then calculate them on the back end and say, here's your ROI. I'm going to say, what measures for you would define success? Why are we doing this work together? Why are we engaging in this? Right? I don't like to talk about culture change because it's such a amorphous thing, but, but really what it is is it's the actions of each person in your organization that define culture. And the work that we do is we're diving into the actions that your leaders are taking on a daily basis that are influencing and impacting the actions of your employees. It is a profound change that can happen. So what does success look like? How do you currently define it? What are your measures? And that is our dashboard. And we create a dashboard and we look at it from the start, we check in in the middle and we look at it on the end. Nice. And sometimes the dashboard is as intangible, but tangible as I will know we have success when my senior leaders speak up during our leadership executive team meeting. Right? For one CEO, that was specific. Like It was specific enough that we could point to it, yes or no. Right? It was a measurable goal, but it wasn't like a, we increased our retention or we decreased our retention by 20%, right? But that was a measurable for that CEO. For another CEO, it's what's our regrettable turnover? And has it been influenced and impacted by our work together? Mm -hmm. I encourage companies, and I usually say, let's look at the bottom line. Let's just look at revenue. It's like a simple way. What changed? Simple-ish, um, right? Because like, so this gets into some more complex lean startup concepts. And this is a rabbit hole I don't think we want to go down. But uh, there's this idea called an actionable metric where you can like directly correlate, like my change had this influence on revenue, for instance. But like revenue is influenced by many things. Um, so that's got to be challenging to measure. Uh, and because I know we're limited on time and I really want to get to your expertise on creating an environment of emotional safety, because this is actually something that I don't think many of the experts we've had on can speak to. Um, how do you feel if we shift gears a little? And I'm down. I told you, any direction you want to take us. Okay, okay. So this topic is crucial. Um, this topic is so crucial. And I think most folks don't understand that when I go to work every day, and I'm being like I, the general human, when, I, when a human goes to work, they want emotional safety. They want to feel like they're not going to be threatened or their livelihoods at stake or like they're a failure. Right, so um, talk to us about how you create that environment because in a lean startup context, we also need to create this environment of safety around failure in particular. And I'm gonna say failure with quotes because often we are trying things and testing things that aren't going to work. In fact, most of the times we're wrong and we fail. So how do we make an environment that is actually emotionally safe? I am so eager for your thoughts on this. 
Okay, I want to I want to give you some ideas and some examples. My mind's going to a lot of places because we talked yeah, about. Yeah, no, that was so broad. I was like, yeah, no, 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 you're good, you're good. There are uh, if anyone looks at Google's Project Aristotle, what they did is they wanted to say what makes a perfect team. How do you make oh. the best team? And their hypothesis was that it's the right mix of people. It's uh, you know a doer and a follower. It's someone who's a director versus someone who's a complot. Like all these different things, they thought it's the people. The type of people you put in the meeting and the type of people you put on the team, and they were wrong. Huh. And what they found was, in their analysis, is there are two main things that drive team performance, and that's psychological safety and clarity. And I'll, I'll give you an example for what that means. Um, Elliot, if I hit a ball at you as hard as I can, are you going to be happy with me? Nope. What if I tell you we're playing tennis? Well, yeah, I mean, that's part of the... This part of the game. Right? Like, you're, you just went from being mad at me, probably pissed, to being like, oh, yeah, that's not a big deal. Right? Because why? Because we, we have those al aligned rules of the game, how we're playing. And yet, we go to work, and one person thinks we're playing tennis, one person thinks we're playing baseball, one person thinks we're playing football, and one person thinks we're playing business. And when you have all those different rules of the game, you're not clear on what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And it's as if you're walking through a field of landmines and you're not sure where you can step and where not to step. And because you're unsure, you don't speak up. You don't share something. You don't bring a diverse perspective, your diverse perspective, opinion, or idea because you don't feel psychologically safe. You don't feel safe that if you say something, you're not going to get shut down. Yeah. And so those two ideas are actually together, right? You need to bring clarity and psychological safety to the workplace so that people can feel like they understand who we are how we work together what we're going after and what we can expect from one another and the way in which that's done is first and foremost by getting clear on you know if you're the founder who you are as a business Right, your purpose, why you started your business. Mine is right to help people unlock their potential. What it means to work as a team, what you can expect from one another. What are your rules of the game? And for companies, they call those their values. For teams, they call those their team agreements. When we do it in our boot camp, we call it establishing your team agreements. What can we agree on, Elliot, for how we're going to work together and play together and fight with one another? Like those agreements, those are the ground rules that say, okay, it's okay to say, shut up. Because I know you're assuming positive intent. Yep. I know we're all working towards the best possible outcome, right? Because that's one of our values, right? Or you're asking me this question. That's because we talk here at Raise the Bar about embracing a beginner's mindset. That means not making assumptions and actually challenging our assumptions and assuming we don't know a situation. And so even though I'm asking you that question, you might be annoyed. It is me bringing a beginner's mindset. And so that, those getting your values your vision, your purpose of your business, and, and even your mission, which are your strategy and your goals, is so important to have clarity from the top down. And when I mean top down, I mean get clarity yourself first if you're the leader of your team. Clarity so that you can point it out. Clarity so that your goals are measurable and smart, specific, measurable, attainable. You know, you're not in your head, right? Time out. Um, and then that is not enough. That is your foundation. That is the ground rules. But if the ground rules of tennis where you can't hit the ball out of bounds, otherwise you don't get a point, 
and I started giving you a point for hitting the ball out of bounds, or I started not, I continued to play the point even after it went out of bounds, then the boundaries wouldn't be what we said they were. It's one thing to say and put in place. It's another thing to do. People will do what you do, not what you say. And so your actions need to follow up. And that's where it's about being open, honest, and direct. And that's one of the things we really focus on is open, honest, and direct leadership. It starts with laying the foundation for direct communication to occur. But then you only create psychological safety when you give and deliver open, honest, and direct communication to your people. Yeah. You know, there's like half a dozen things I want to talk about. You know, one that you were just describing though, I, I took leadership coursework once upon a time. And one of the things that we talked about was something that reminds me of what you were describing uh, with that Aristotle project, I think is what you called it at Google, uh, where they, I think it was like some empire once upon a time thought that like different characteristics or traits are what made a leader good. And then after they had like hundreds of these traits written down, they realized that maybe that wasn't <laughs> the thing that made a leader good or not. Uh, but the two things that the instructor in this course that taught, had taught me was honesty and integrity, which I think lines up so closely with what you had just described. Um, I think that's really interesting. I think it's really- I define, I define honesty and integrity actually almost in the same way. Yeah. Honesty is doing what you say you're gonna do. And integrity, in my mind, is when your, it, your values, your purpose as a human, like what you value, matches up with your intentions. What you intend to do matches up with your actions, right? And so that is just another way of saying you do what you say you're going to do, and you do what you intend you're going to do, and you do what is valuable, what, what you value. And so, yeah, I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Also and known I, as clarity. What is right? Also known as clarity in a work environment, right? Here's what I said I valued. Here's what, what I then did. And like, here's how that was rewarded or not or whatever, like all that. Yes. So yeah, it's, like, it's like the company that has a no assholes policy, but doesn't fire their top performing salesperson because they're bringing in the most money, even though they're an asshole, even though they're an asshole. Yeah. 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 No, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I think that's so interesting, right? Getting, getting your actions to align with your words is a big deal. And I can see how that would create some amount of psychological safety if you really could create an environment in which um, what you said you valued aligned with what you actually valued and aligned with what you did. So um, I think we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, before we close out, are there any um, thoughts that you have or things you want to sort of summarize and and leave that final impression with our viewers? I'll leave this. There's a quote uh, that I just, I love. It's by Jane Goodall. And it says, what you do makes a difference and you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. Um, and I take a little bit of liberty with this quote and I actually change it just a bit. And I say, what you do makes a difference and you get to decide what kind of difference you want to make. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's true to each and every one of us, wherever we are within our lives, our organizations, is you get to decide what kind of difference you want to make. Um, and all of the stuff that we talked about comes from choice, from choosing to do and to take action intentionally, as opposed to letting things happen to you. And so that's what I would share with anybody else is you get to decide what kind of choice you want to take, what kind of choices you want to make, um, and what kind of difference you want to have. Nice. I love it. I love it. I've often said something similar. Are you a leader or are you a victim?
Take your choice. You can't be both. If you want to be a victim, there's the door. <laughs> cool, my friend. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation with you. I learned a lot. Love that portion about psychological safety. Man, I could geek out on that stuff all day long. If folks want to find out more about you and your business, where can they find you? Yeah, they can go to www.raisebar.co. That's R-A-I-S-E.co. Um, and then they can also, we have our boot camp. So you can find our boot camp series on that, um, on that page as well and learn more about that too. Awesome. Love it. And if you've got any questions for me or Aaron, you can always send me an email as well. That's education at leanstartup.co. Again, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really enjoyed it. Uh, and until next time, my friends, look forward to seeing you on our next webcast. Take care, everybody. <laughs>